3 when it's talking about John the Baptist and it says, a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare ye the way of the Lord. It quotes the prophet Isaiah. Interesting. Do you know chapter 1 of Isaiah talks about the God of heaven and earth? What's the first book of the Bible? And what's the first verse of the first book of the Bible? The heavens and the earth, right? Are you seeing a correlation? Let's jump all the way to the end of Isaiah, chapter 66. It talks about a new heaven and a new earth. What's the final 66th book of the Bible? Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Does that blow your mind as much as it blows mine? That's incredible. And I understand that chapters and verses and the numbers and headings that you see in your Bible were added by man afterwards so that we could find our place in the books of the Bible, but somebody had their eye on what was going on, didn't they? The Bible is an incredible book. So Pastor Josh, why do you say all that? That's trivia, numbers in one ear, out the other. I totally get that, but here's why I'm saying it. This collection of books that we call the Bible is incredible. We will never fully understand it. We will never come to the end of it. We will never be finished with it. It's relevant for today. If it wasn't for the Bible, I would have no reason to stand up here this morning. We should have all just slept in because I've got nothing to say if not for the Bible the collection of those 66 books. We're never going to exhaust them and we need to live by them. We have a letter written from the creator of the universe to us. Why would we not be in it? Why would we not be reading it? Why would we not want to know it cover to cover what our creator thinks of us, what he has planned for us, and what he's done for us? That's the Bible. That's why we're here this morning. Let's talk about Isaiah. Isaiah is a major prophet, and it's been said that he's major because of the content of his book. It's not that he's more important than the minor prophets. It's just that 66 chapters is a lot, and it's a lot of content. He's a major prophet. He wrote and prophesied and ministered during the reign of four different kings, some 60 years. And he wrote what we're going to read today by the inspiration of the Spirit, 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth in flesh. 700 years. We can't really get a concept on how long of a time that is because it's 10 times the average lifespan. 700 years. So what we're going to talk about today was written 700 years before Christ and 2,700 years before where we're at today. 700 years years. So where are we at in the story? Last week, Doug talked about the fall of the northern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, on the border of Assyria. Assyria overtook them and took them into captivity. Today, when we read in the book of Isaiah, he's going to be looking forward prophetically to a time in the future that we have not actually arrived yet chronologically to, when Judah, the southern kingdom, would be taken captive by the Babylonians. So you have the Assyrians being the dominant power. They're overtaken by the Babylonians, who are then overtaken by Cyrus the Great and the Persians. That's how history is going to unfold. And we're going to dig into the exile and what it was like in those cultures as we work our way towards Christmas and talk about characters like Daniel and Nehemiah. So I'm not going to get into all the details today, as you can't with 66 chapters of the Bible. little ambitious. So what's the book of Isaiah like? Pastor Steve talked us through the book of Hosea and God's redemptive heart for people who are willingly choosing to submit themselves back to captivity and slavery. God's redemptive heart for his people to go and buy them back. In the book of Isaiah, we see this dichotomy and it's almost like between chapters. You read one chapter where it's defeat and discouragement and destruction. And you read the very next chapter is God's heart of mercy and grace and triumph. One chapter's pain, the next chapter's peace. And it just goes back and forth until we get to chapter 39, 
where the people of Judah are taken into captivity to Babylon, and the next 27 chapters are talking about the future comfort and triumph and grace and mercy of a loving God who redeems his people. So that's the layout for the book of Isaiah. Now, do you have all that information tucked away in a safe spot? You're never going to forget it. It's not going to leave your mind before you get home today. We, we are recording this, so if you need to, <laughs> need to go back and watch it or take notes. Obviously, we can't do all 66 books, chapters. Well, books would be way too ambitious, but 66 chapters, we can't do that. So we're going to focus on two. So if you would take your copy of the scriptures whether you have a paperback, a hardcover, a digital copy, and open up to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to have it on the screens as well because we want the Word of God to be apparent in this place in all ways that we can. Because that's the reason we're meeting together this morning. That's the only reason I have anything to say. Since we're at chapter 52, Isaiah is looking prophetically into the future to a time when Judah and Israel would be released from their captivity in Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. So when we start reading 52, it's that tone of triumph and freedom. So that's where we're at in the story prophetically in the future, although we're not there chronologically. So if I start talking like this was about to happen and here's the result and you're getting confused in the timing, it's because we're talking prophetically in the future. And ultimately, we're talking about Jesus, who would come 700 years later. Somewhat confusing, but totally incredible, all wrapped up in one. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Here we go. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So keep in mind, Isaiah is writing this before the exile and captivity and slavery ever take place. He's writing into the future. God's invitation to come home was given before the people were taken from their homes. Do you catch that? God's revealing his heart. He's revealing what's going to take place before they're ever taken. Before they ever step into the situation, God's saying, I'm going to bring you home. You know, church, we know the end of the story, don't we? The Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ died once for sin and then was seated at the right hand of the Father and that work's finished. That he has gone to prepare a place for us, that where he is, there we may be also. And the beast has been tossed into the lake of fire, future, prophetically, and every tear from every eye, all the pain and suffering and sorrow, will be wiped away, and we will have a heavenly eternal home with our Father because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We know the end of the story. Your life's going to be difficult. Life has been difficult. It's been full of trials. Maybe you're in one now. Maybe it's in the back of your mind. Maybe you can't hear what I'm saying this morning because you're just thinking of the suffering that you have to step back into when this service is over. Life's going to be difficult, but we know that in the end, we're going to be home with our Heavenly Father for all eternity. So why would we not make this time count? Why would we not do all we can? Because we know the end of the story just like Israel knew the end of the story. What would it be like to be captive in Babylon? Not great, eh? Daniel's going to tell us more about that and other characters, other minor and major prophets. Can you imagine being taken from your home? Can you imagine your, your sons being put into forced labor? Your daughters being taken to the palace to serve the king. Different language, different food, different customs, different clothing. Nothing familiar. Can you imagine sitting down to have the feast of Passover, which was a Jewish tradition? Remembering a time when God freed the people from slavery in Egypt, but now you're back in slavery in Babylon. Wouldn't that cause some doubt? 
wouldn't that cause discouragement and depression? I don't know if you noticed or not, but I brought two friends with me this morning. Because we are all about sharing the journey here at Faith Baptist Church. And we want our friends, we want our coworkers, we want our family members to be here to hear the good news of Jesus. So I thought I would show the example and bring my friends right here. So, this beautiful little guy represents Israel and the captivity and chains that they were in under Babylon. And this handsome gentleman over here with the beautiful gold sash, this represents our hero of the story that Isaiah calls my servant. And as ridiculous as it is, sometimes tactile and visual illustrations are really going to help solidify God's message for us this morning. Israel would be in captivity to Babylon and Persia, but the time has come to get up shake off the dust, and remove the bonds from around their neck. And then we come to verse 3. Let's read it. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. You know, it would be great if we could just pay a fee and be done with the whole sin thing. You know, if we could just make bail and then be freed from our chains and shackles. But the problem is the cost is too high for any of us. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first to Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, Here I am. That was a lot in those few verses, so let me break it down a little bit. We talked about Egypt and the Passover and how the people of Israel were in captivity in the land of Egypt. And maybe you remember the story of the ten plagues and the freedom that God brought from Egypt. Now the people are going to be in captivity in Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. And God is saying, I'm going to bring freedom from oppression and captivity there as well. By the same power and the same might. Then we see some interesting, and I'm going to use a big word here, anthropomorphisms, which is physical human attributes placed onto spiritual deity, which is God. When we talk about God as if he were a man, anthropomorphism, God is shown to be considering and wondering and asking a question The creator of the universe who created everything is asking a question. Can I just suggest that God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to? God is omniscient. He knows everything. Even those things that you think you can hide from God, he knows all. God is wondering and pondering, so says Isaiah in his prophetic vision, And he asked this question, what have I here? And we're talking about the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the tetragrammaton referring to the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. So the question could be, what have we here? And I just picture, I've said this numerous times, walking around the corner as a parent, and you see your children, and they found the makeup, right? And it's everywhere. Lipsticks on the walls. Or maybe they found the scissors. And they've given themselves a haircut, right? And then you as a parent have to be the one to explain it to their daycare person and and whatnot. It's just awkward and embarrassing. God the Father looks on the situation of his children Israel and he says, What have we here? Israel, what am I going to do with you? all the while knowing God's redemptive heart as a good and faithful father and parent is to fix the situation, to buy them back out of their captivity. What have we here? The Babylonians took you. They're treating you poorly. They're treating my name poorly. We've got to do something about that because God redeems his people. That's his heart. 
for his people. They're going to see his majesty, his power, and his redemptive might. Everything God does is for the sake of his name. Do you know that? God doesn't have to ask why or or come up with a reason for anything. Everything God does is for the glory of his name. And everything we do needs to be for the glory of God's name. And there's no better way to glorify God's name than to spread his fame. That's what it's all about, sharing the journey, letting people know that we're on a journey in a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything God does is for his name. You can be sure that if you're stuck, if you're addicted, if you're in a broken relationship, if you're lost in mental illness, if the chains of sin and captivity, the effects of sin have their weight on you, that God's heart is redemption to free you from that weight and to buy you back, as we're going to talk about today. There's no struggle that you could be suffering with today or be locked under that Jesus doesn't have the power when he rose out of the grave to free you from today. You can just see the people of Judah. And they're hearing Isaiah's message and thinking, yes, you know, he's a powerful God, right? The hero of the story, full of might and strength and honor and dignity and awesomeness and whatever adverb or adjective you can throw in there, this is going to be our guy. And they're building these expectations. And then I think it kind of captures the emotion in the next section of scripture of what they would have been feeling as they're thinking about the God who's going to free them from their captivity. Look at this, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's my hero. That's my king. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. That would be some flex, wouldn't it? For him to roll up his sleeve and to show his might before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 700 years BC, fortified cities would have these massive walls around them. Uh, If you heard the preaching on Jericho, massive walls. And they would have watchmen up on the wall in towers so that they could see what was coming, kind of like ancient radar system, right? What's coming over the hill? Do we need to warn the commander of the army of what we see coming over the hill? You just picture these watchmen after they've been through captivity and slavery, looking out and thinking, oh, what is the impending doom that we're going to see coming over that hill? Every watchman's worst nightmare would be the sound of those feet of a coming army over the hill. But how beautiful the sound of peaceful feet, of that white flag being carried over the hill. The battle is over. The war is won. There's no more captivity. There's no more suffering. Victory, triumph. The enemy is defeated. That's the picture. You can hear them getting excited. You can hear them picturing their conquering king, picturing this Alexander the Great type figure who can never be beaten and leads in destruction and triumph over his enemies with his foot up on the body of the soldiers that he's defeated, right? That's the picture that they're automatically putting on this character called my servant. Isaiah continues his prophetic encouragement of leaving the captivity that was to come in the future, and we're at verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, the vessels of the Lord were symbols of God's presence. We have the symbol of God's presence within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, for you shall not go out In haste, think about this. They're captive to Assyria and Babylon and Persia. In chains, 
in bondage. And now that they're freed, Isaiah says, don't run, don't rush, don't be hasty. And you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You know, there's a lot of similarities between the exodus from Egypt and the exodus that would come from Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. When the people exited Egypt and they had that Passover feast, you remember they had to have their staff and their cloak and their sandals ready because they were going to have to get out of there. They were going to have to hightail it and run. You remember the Egyptian army was behind them, but God was their rear guard, wasn't he? He sent that fire to protect them. Then he opened the waters like his shield pressing through them before them and brought them through. And then he dropped that Red Sea on the Egyptian army. Now Isaiah's encouragement is don't run away. Don't be too hasty in your exit from captivity. You can just see these people snickering, right? If I've got chains around my neck and I'm in forced labor, and Isaiah, I don't know about you, but you know, maybe you haven't been in captivity. Maybe you don't really understand all that's entailed and what we're going to be put through in this. Maybe you don't know the Assyrians and all the evil wickedness and torturous acts that they performed. As soon as they're looking the other way, I'm going to jump the fence and head for the woods. I'm not going to wait around. Why are we waiting around? You know, I don't know at all if this fits, but I'm going to say it because I think it's good biblical advice. You can't run from your problems. Have you realized that? Have you tried that? If you're anything like me, you've tried it numerous times, and what happens? The faster you run, the closer those problems are right behind you. You're never going to outrun it. Thanksgiving was last Monday, wasn't it? And I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. We went down to Bridgewater to be with my aunt and uncle and their family. We had a great turkey dinner. Um, they live right next to the ATV trails, the old rail track that goes through Bridgewater. So my uncle and I hopped on the ATVs, four-wheelers, quads. What do you call them? Four-wheelers? Okay. In New Brunswick, they called them ATVs, and that's just so wrong, isn't it? It's four-wheeler, right? I'm glad you're all right there with me. So we jump on the four-wheelers because we're waiting for turkey dinner. It's great. I couldn't imagine having a better Thanksgiving right there, four-wheelers, turkey dinner. And we head out right from their driveway, going through the woods, and you could probably do the whole province right from their driveway. It's incredible. So we're going straight back into the woods, lake after lake, logging road, um, trails that hadn't been used in forever. We get to the furthest point on our probably the better part of two hours drive, and perched in the trees up on this rock at the furthest, deepest point into the deep, dark woods that we traveled was probably the smallest shed that you could buy at Kent Building Supplies 20 years ago. And it looked like it had been sitting there for 20 years, and it had a mattress in there and a little propane cooker. And we uh, knocked on the door and opened it, nobody there, no raccoons there that we knew of. And my uncle said, Somebody really wants to be alone. You know, it's, it's really tempting some days to run off to a cabin in the woods, isn't it? Leave, leave all your troubles behind. Leave the phone and the laptop at work. Just run away, right? And if we learned anything about the story of Jonah, you can't outrun your problems, can you? Isolation and separatism are really tempting and seem to make sense at times. Getting some distance and isolation from the people around us who are not like us seems right a lot of the time, doesn't it? And we should be different from the world. We should be countercultural. We shouldn't put up with everything society says and all that culture wants to impose on the church, but we can't run away from people who are not like us if I could put this term, enemies. We can't run away from our enemies. This church is here as a spotlight and beacon for this community, for Colchester County, for Great Village, for Masstown. We are here 
because we have the message of the life-changing gospel. And for us to separate or isolate ourselves or to be our own little commune and community because nobody does it like we do it, and if people stepped in from the outside, it might change the way that we do things, it doesn't work. I don't know if that fits with the story we're going through, but I think it's good biblical advice, and it was on my heart. Isaiah 52 and verse 10. If I get all preachy, we're not going to have time for the second half of the sermon here. All right. Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God's display of redemption and bringing freedom for his people was not just for his people. Did you catch that? Why did God roll up his sleeve and flex his bicep? It was so the nations could see the power of Israel's God. Why would God display any of his glory to people who are not his own people? It's because God's heart is redemption for all humanity. Because all have sinned and fallen short. And God loved the whole world that he gave his only son. It's for the community. We can't run away. We can't isolate ourselves. Throughout the post-exile chapters of Isaiah, those final 27 chapters, there's consistent mention of this figure that Isaiah calls my servant. My servant. He's the one on which all of those who heard Isaiah's message were placing and imposing their expectations upon. This guy's going to be the hero. This guy's going to stand head and shoulders above the crowd, be tall, dark, and handsome from a rich family with a well-known name just like King Saul was, right? Putting their expectations on the Messiah, the chosen one, who Isaiah calls my servant. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. This is the hero of the story, right? He's going to be tall. He's going to be wise. He's going to be smart. He's going to have all the answers. He's just going to be able to conquer and wield the sword and wield the shield. He's going to take everybody out. We're just going to be following in his wake. He's going to do it all. My servant. Now, I can only assume that people are expecting this to be the victor who frees them from military and political oppression. But Isaiah, through the prophetic inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that political and military issues were not the big problem. How many know oftentimes the enemy isn't the person in front of us? The enemy is working within us. The problem often isn't your situation or what's standing before you. The problem is your heart, your outlook, your attitude. I get caught doing that so many times. I complain and say, oh, I wish this was different or this is bugging me here. And I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, but I'm just using hand motions because that's what I do. (laughs) And God will use people in my life, often my wife, to point out, that's your own attitude saying those things. It's not the enemy in front of us. It's the enemy at work within us. That human nature. Their expectations are about to be shook. Right here. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, right? That hero who's going to save the day and astonish everybody in awe and awesome power. Wrong. They're astonished because, verse 14 says, his appearance was so marred beyond that of human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard They understand. We're talking about the messianic king, the chosen one, the Messiah. This 
is Jesus. We've been talking about how the Bible is not just history, it's his story. And it's all about him. Every story in the Bible is about Jesus. And here Jesus is, in the story, being talked about with incredible detail 700 years before he was ever born of a virgin and walked the earth. I want you to keep that in mind. 700 years. Many times we look at the Old Testament, we look at characters in the Bible and we think they were so much closer to Jesus. But these people are 700 years removed from Jesus. This is the same thing that happened to Jesus' disciples. You can read about it in the New Testament. We're going to get there eventually. The disciples had the wrong expectations of Jesus, didn't they? They thought the greatest issue was the enemy in front of them and not the enemy at work in their hearts. The Roman oppression. Guess what? God's people were in captivity to the Romans at that point in the story. God's people are always in captivity. But God's heart is always to free them from captivity. They thought Jesus was going to be this conquering king and Messiah who led a political and military revolt and uprising. But then Jesus would say these weird things like love your enemies. Do good to those who curse you and bless those who hate you. Why would somebody who's going to conquer with the sword be saying things about loving your enemies? It's because Jesus was not who they expected Jesus to be. And can I make this point? Maybe the Jesus of your expectations is not the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe your Jesus is a superhero who flies around fighting crime and protecting the innocent. Maybe your Jesus is cute and cuddly like a cozy blanket and a tight hug. Maybe your Jesus is a religious leader who rules with an iron fist and if anybody steps out of line, they're going to get it. This is the Jesus of the Bible that we're about to dig into and talk about. Their expectations totally flipped on their head. They were astonished at the servant because he was so beaten and bloody and beard pulled and naked. And it was a shameful sight that people hide their faces from. But yet somehow he would grab the attention of kings, causing them to shut their mouths. It doesn't make sense to the people that Isaiah is talking to. How is somebody like that going to ever stand against or influence a great king like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar is going to go on to build this massive statue and have everybody bow before it. And we're going to read that story. How is somebody like this ever going to stand up to a great leader like that? It doesn't make any sense. The true messianic king did not line up with the leader of their expectations. So let's turn to chapter 53. We'll read about Isaiah's prophecy of the future messianic king, the chosen one, God's son named Jesus. Chapter 53. And keep in mind, I know I've said it multiple times, this is 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? Finally, Isaiah, you're making sense. This stuff is pretty unbelievable, isn't it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed them not. This is not the Messiah they had pictured. This isn't the chosen king that they had imagined bringing freedom from their chains. Can I suggest there's a lot of confusion at this point as to what Isaiah is talking about and who he's talking about. But then there's this key shift in focus. Up to that point, 
Judah had drawn some pretty clear lines as to who the enemy was. The enemy was all these people before them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, soon to be the Persians. They were the enemy. They are the ones, if anyone, who are going to cause suffering for the Messiah, the Chosen One. The Messiah is going to have to fight them to bring our freedom. But there's this key shift, and I hope you catch it. Verse 4. Surely he has borne whose griefs? Our griefs. And carried whose sorrows? Our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. Literally pierced through his hands and feet. He was crushed for whose iniquities? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a key shift. God would bring Israel out of Babylon and Persian captivity. But ultimately, God would use the Messiah to bring true freedom from our captive hearts, wouldn't he? Because whether people oppress you or not, your own conscience is oppressing that sin nature within you. You can separate yourself from everybody you want. You can get a cabin. You can go to the woods. That sounds great some days. But you're still going to be left alone with your evil heart. No, I heard it said one, one time, if you find the perfect church, it will cease to be that way once you step inside. Because people have problems, don't they? It's the evil within our own hearts. God would use the Messiah to bring true freedom from their captive hearts. You are responsible for Jesus' death and suffering because it's your death and suffering that he carried on your cross. I am responsible for Jesus' death and suffering because it's my death and my suffering that Jesus took on my cross. When I was eight years old, just a young boy, that thought totally changed my life. Because I realized for the first time that Jesus wasn't just some stranger who got injured and hurt and there's no relation to me. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother who died for me in my place with my sin hung around his neck. And I made the decision to trust Christ for my sin. You know, I, I don't know what it is for you. What's got you weighed down, what the effects of sin look like in your life. Maybe it's grief, like the verse said. Grief means to be so anxious that you're literally sick to your stomach. You ever felt that way? You ever felt the weight of sin in your life like that? Literally making yourself ill. Or maybe it's something like this. Sorrow. Pain, suffering, not only physically, but mentally. Mental illness is a huge thing in our world today. Anguish, sadness. There is more depression in the world today than ever before. Maybe the effects of sin look something like this in your life and in your heart. Transgression, good term for sin. Breaking trust. Have you ever had a friend break trust, stab you in the back? 
the effects of sin in your life. We've all been the one to break trust. We've rebelled, we've trespassed, we've offended. Maybe sin has its effects in a different way in your life. And as the verse that we just read, maybe it's with wounds, welts, stripes, scourges, bruises, strikes, hurts, physical pain, physical illness, injury from a friend, a loved one. I don't know what anybody did to you in the past, but maybe you've been carrying the effects of sin in your heart and it's kept you bound. Maybe the effects of sin look like this for you. Affliction. Listen to this. Frustrated. Put down. Depressed. Humiliated. We live in a comparison culture. And when you go on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, you're instantly comparing yourself to everybody else's highlight reel, the things that they found worthy of posting. And instantly we do this in our mind, how do I measure up to that? How do I measure up to them? And the effects of sin and selfishness and pride lock us up, don't they? Maybe it's like this last word that was in the verse. Iniquity. Oh man, we've all felt like this. Guilt. Blame. Punishment. Shame. Fault. And how many times have we felt at fault and felt responsible for the sin and sickness and brokenness that we see in the world around us? You know, Jesus took everything on his shoulders. The weight that we carried, he willingly took this, and he did it for everybody. And he carried it on his shoulders. It was our iniquity, our sin, our trespass that he carried on his shoulders to the cross. And he did it for every person on the face of the planet from the past, present, or future. He carried all of their sin on his shoulders on the cross. The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He's looking forward to a day like we talked about at the start, because we know the end of the story, where he's victorious. He rose from the dead, and he's going to prepare a place for us that where he is, there we may be also. He took that punishment for everybody. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah knew 700 years before that Jesus would not give a defense, a complaint, or an argument when he was on his unfair trial the night before his crucifixion. Even when the judge would go so far as to say, I find no reason to condemn this man, Jesus still doesn't speak up. Verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, my people, not the enemy, his own people. Verse 9, They made his grave with the wicked, Because Jesus was crucified between two criminals. And with a rich man in his death, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea within the garden of that rich man's own property. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to this. Just in case you thought that this was some coincidence or occurrence in history that just ended up happening, look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you know this was always God's plan? Before God created the heavens and the earth, he looked through the portals of eternity and he saw you and he saw me. And he saw your annoying neighbor and your crazy uncle. And he loved everybody. And he knew before the dawn of time that we would choose to separate ourselves from him in sin and all the weight that we get entangled in. And he made the decision to die on that cross in our place for our sin. Whether we accept him or not, he paid the price for our sin. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the righteous one, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This crazy thing happens. When Jesus Christ takes our iniquity and our shame and our regret and guilt and pain and suffering, he offers us freely his righteousness. So that when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees all the chains and suffering and effects of sin. Instead, he sees the righteousness and perfection of his loving son. When God sees Josh Fillmore, he doesn't see all the shame and lust and greed that I've had wrapped around my neck. He sees the righteousness of his son. We can't pay the price on our own. This is the great exchange. Jesus has taken all the effects and punishment of sin on his shoulders. And he offers us freely his banner of love and his righteousness, citizenship in heaven, adoption as a son and daughter of the Most High God. And all we have to do is receive it. Just like all the Israelites in Egypt had to do was follow God's invitation to leave just like all the Israelites had to do in Babylon when God freed them, was to follow his invitation home. Today, God's inviting you home. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. Jesus is the only one who could take our sin. He lived a perfect life as the spotless lamb of God that was slain. He was the only one who could take the punishment for others. There's no way around it. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We can pretend and make it by for a while, but we need Jesus. Everybody's got to come to the point in life where they make this critical decision. Jesus carried your sin whether you wanted him to or not. Now it's up to you and your response. Will you trust him? Will you accept his banner of righteousness and forgiveness and acceptance into his loving family for all eternity? Or will you let Jesus carry your sin, and particularly your sin, in vain? Because you won't accept his gift in your place. Let's read verse 12 as we finish this chapter. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for
for the transgressors. Jesus intercedes for us. That means he stands in the gap. That means he is the bridge to a relationship with God the Father. When we stand before God the Father, that's a scary thought. Jesus goes before us as our defense. He intercedes on our behalf. If we accept his payment in our place and his righteousness, which he offers us, then we can stand before God redeemed, cleansed from our sin, a new creation, the Bible says, and Jesus intercedes for us. Can we just close our eyes and bow our heads as we end this morning? We're going to enjoy the cafe in a moment. We're going to have some great conversations. We're going to go on with our day. But as we close in prayer, just you and God, if you haven't made the decision to trust Jesus as your personal Savior, would you be willing to do that today? If you've resonated with the weights that were hung around this poor stick man's neck, and you've struggled through grief, sorrow, anxiety, and shame, Jesus invites you to receive his payment for your sin. With everyone's eyes closed, if that's you, would you just stand? Would you just pop up right where you're seated? Just to clarify the decision that you've made in your heart to trust Christ as your Savior. If you've been struggling with that weight of sin and you know you need Jesus today, would you just stand? We're not going to invite you up on stage to say anything strange. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you out. If you know you need Jesus today for the first time, would you just stand? Thank you. Thank you. You can be seated. God, I just want to praise you so much today for the work that you're doing in hearts and lives. God, I pray for the decisions that have been made today. Father, we thank you so much for the death of your son in our place, for that gift and offering of love. God, we thank you that you bore our sin and our shame, our guilt, our trespasses, that you were afflicted. We thank you that you did it for us and you did it for love. God, help us to be always sharing this journey that we have with Jesus. Help us never to isolate ourselves from the community around us or people who aren't like us. God, help us to always be reaching out with open arms like that father who accepted his son home. God, we thank you for your word this morning, for the firm foundation that we can stand on. God, I thank you now for the cafe and the food that we'll get to enjoy together. I pray for the conversations we'll have after the service. God, help us to be shining lights of your glory, to be spreading your fame. We thank you for all you've done, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision today, I would love to talk to you. I hope you have a great day. Be blessed this week.